even though God is in control, there are times in the midst of this world that we can't see what he's controlling or what he's doing. And sometimes we're afraid of those things because I find that there remains in most of us at least a a trace of cowardice in the midst of uh, pain and suffering. Don't you think so? It used to come out in me um, when I knew I had to go see the dentist. It doesn't anymore. I have a great dentist. He goes to this church, so I have to tell you that. It used to be that every time I felt a little bit of pain, you know, uh, I avoided it. I denied it. I said, I'm just, this is just it's nothing. It's nothing until it was too late. Because, you know, as people say, if you wait till you feel the pain, you've waited too long. I think the place where most of us try to deny or ignore uh, the pain that is a part of this world is when we have to face death. Because uh, death takes away what most people in this world are living for. Living for their careers, their looks, their health, their pleasure. And you know, when death is, is in, on the horizon, it takes all of that away. So there is a lot of, uh, some, for some anxiety, but for many people, just denial. Just live their whole lives knowing it's coming, but, but not thinking about it. Everybody but followers of Jesus. That's what First Peter says. We believe something's happened in this world that shows that God is in control, even of death. We have a living hope because of a resurrected Christ. Now, it's interesting when I say that to you, because you know that followers of Jesus, we have gotten a rap for a long time, still is a big part of our world, that we are people who don't look realities in the face. We just kind of look to the future. We don't even think about what's happening in this world. We don't want to make a difference in this world because it isn't going to last Anyway, you know that Karl Marx said that, don't you? Karl Marx would say that that religion is the opiate for the people. And he was talking about preachers like me. He was writing to a place that was mostly uh, Christian. People like me who would, he would say, you tell people so much about the future and the by and by that people are anesthetized. They are numbed to any of the evil and injustices of this world and they don't make any difference. They ignore reality. That's what Marx said. Uh, Sigmund Freud, coming also out of German-speaking Europe, my own heritage, uh, also said the same thing. Um, he, he did it in a different way. He said when children are little children and they, they have difficulties, they try to run away from those difficulties by running to their parents. He said as you and I get older, uh, we're too embarrassed to run to our parents. <laughs> but, but we create, he says, we create some, some sort of a spiritualized parent Uh, a heavenly father, and we run there without facing reality. Now, even though I think most people here in Southern California haven't read either Marx or Freud, still their way of thinking has filtered down. And even though we're open to spirituality, many people think about us as gatherers in the name of Jesus, as people who, who won't look at the realities of this world, the injustices and evils of this world head on. Now, I just this may not surprise you. But I don't agree with them. Just may not surprise you. What I say about people who say that is, you haven't read the basic documents. <laughs> if you read the Bible, especially what we've been reading here at Lake Avenue Church throughout the summer, First Peter, you will see that even the Bible, though the Bible does talk about the day that we will see that God is in control, that there is more to this world than what we see now, and there is a life beyond this life, even though it does say that. 
it tells us that when we face trials in this world, we don't have to run from them. Far from it. The Bible says that we bring Christ into our lives, the resurrected Christ, and then He sends us into this world to live His way so that people should see us in the midst of this difficult world and in seeing us should increasingly see what God is like, the eternal God. That's what we've been studying throughout Peter in case you haven't been noticing it. He sends us into our communities. And even if you have a political world that might define certain institutions in ways different from the Scriptures, we don't panic because God is in control. And He sends us into the workplace. And even though it's a tough workplace, those that we work for should know in the midst of that place that they have in a follower of Jesus somebody who's going to give them a good ways, a day's work for a good day's pay. That's what they should know about us, even if we're mocked because we become Christians. We should go back into our families and be faithful husbands and wives, faithful parents. We are sent back into the world. And, and Peter says, sometimes when you bear the name of Christ and they know you're a follower of Jesus and you live God's way, even though you do what is right, you're going to face difficulties. Simmering under all of First Peter is that as we are sent back into the world, facing the realities of this world, living for Christ in this world, that sometimes that very acknowledgement that we bear the name of Jesus will bring difficulties with it. Every verse of 1 Peter has simmering under it that message because he was writing to people in the first century living in what's now Turkey who had become followers of Jesus and their family said, what kind of sect have you gotten into? And the workplace said, what is this weird group following this Jewish Messiah? And uh, even in the political arena, they were being oppressed. So it's simmering under every word of 1 Peter. But there are two places in 1 Peter where Peter takes up this matter of trials and difficulties head on and specifically. The first place is in the very beginning. I don't know if you remember it. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Let me show it to you again. He would start by saying, listen, for a little while, you will have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You need to know that these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth even than gold, and notice this, this phrase, which perishes even though refined by fire. Notice, that's how he begins. That your faith may be proved genuine. Now here as we come near the end of First Peter, and I can hardly believe or almost, I don't know what I'm going to preach about when First Peter is over. But, but he takes up the same topic specifically. He says, okay, let's get back to that and uses very similar words in verse 12. Dear friends, he says, do not be surprised at the, and, and the real word is fiery ordeal, uses that notion of fire again, that has come on you, once again, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, in the text that we come to today, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, so much of what he does in the middle of this text is summarize what I've talked about all through this series. So what I've chosen to do in the few moments that I have is to focus on that first verse and then the last one because they're the keys. And it's so simple. As he, do, as he talks to us about going through trials, first of all, what he talks about is what they are, what trials are in the perspective of God because I've found that half the battle in dealing with difficulties is understanding what God is trying to do. Uh, number two, what trials do in our lives and then number three, just a word at the very end about how we're supposed to respond to trials. So it's pretty simple, isn't it? What they are, what they do, and then third, how we're to live when they come. 
So what are, what are trials in the perspective of God? Chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 12 uses one word for the way you and I view the difficulties we go through, and it is the word fire. Trials that come, the Greek word pur, trials that come are like fire. Fire that come, and in both of those verses too, for a purpose, to approve or to test. That's how we view it. Trials are fire that test or approve something. Trials is fire. It's not the destructive nature of fire that he talks about, but the positive nature of fire. Really, the the metaphor that, that he uses is of a, a rock uh, that a goldsmith, because in verse 7, it, he sp- speaks specifically about someone who has gold, a goldsmith or a silversmith has, and when he gets that rock, it, it's a mixture of both of, of the genuine metal of gold as well as, as something that isn't gold. It's dross. So the goldsmith wants to get gold out of that rock. How, how's he going to do it? And the answer is fire, uh, heat. Uh, the heat is something that the gold can hold up to and the dross is incinerated by it. So a good goldsmith, in wanting to, to have pure gold, uses fire to bring it about. How long, you ask? And so many times you, you've perhaps heard this. The goldsmith says, I apply the fire until I can look at the gold and see the reflection of my face in it. Hold on to that for a minute. So it's fire, fire that proves or, or tests. It, it's going to show that something is genuine. Uh, and what is real and, and, and what is not. Teachers who are here, it, it, it's like what we try to do in a classroom. Uh, we give a test to find out whether our students have really, genuinely gotten the things that we want them to get. How, how, do, how does the teacher discover that? We, without a test, it's almost impossible. So, in this world, almost every rock will be an amalgam, a mixture uh, of gold and of dross. You you can't even really always see with our natural eyes where one begins and the other one ends. Uh, And so heat, fire, is sent to be able to separate the real uh, from the unreal. Uh, It's one of the most important things that can be done. If if it's mostly dross, when the heat comes, the whole rock's going to be incinerated. (laughs) If it's mostly gold, it may not be changed all that much. Now, what does that say to us in following Jesus? I'm sure many of you already see it. Chapter 1, verse 7, Peter would say, Gold is refined and our faith is worth even more. Fires are sent so that we can see whether our faith is real. That it can be purified and be seen to be both genuine and beautiful. I think I wrote this for you. What the Bible is saying is something that most of us who go to church often don't want to acknowledge, but we all know it's true. That even after we come to Jesus, we still have within us this this mixture, this amalgam of trusting Jesus on the other one side and trusting in other things on the other. Any anybody want to acknowledge that? We start out, especially when, when we give our lives to Christ, as this, this amalgam of, of godly commitments, I want to live for God, but also worldly affections. Sometimes we can't even quite sort them out. God has promised, though. You see it throughout the New Testament. God has promised that He's going to do something great in each one of us. 
He is going to do a work so that as Colossians 1.28 says, someday you and I are going to become complete in Christ. And Romans 8 says, we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. How is that going to happen? Well, we need some fire to come into our lives to, to, to make us refined and pure. And how long will God allow them to come? Until he can see the reflection of his face in us. All right, that's what, fire, what trials are, fire. Second, what then do they do in our lives? I've already been getting at that and several things that, that we find here. Number one, the fire that comes shows when our hearts are divided. Now again, I want to talk about something that's rarely talked about in 21st century Southern California American churches. Here it is. There are many of us who go to church and come to points in our lives that when that mixture of affections is clear to us, we begin to wonder if we really belong to God at all. When people are really honest with me, so many times they come in and talk to me about this, it's because we know ourselves, right? We know ourselves, things we try to hide from others. We know it. We look inside of our inner beings and sometimes when we see that mixture of other things and we say, but that's still there and some of them are bad, some of them we can't even see. <laughs> We're just blind to it. We begin to wonder, is this real? Am, am I real? Uh, Pastor Tim Keller talks about this so often. And he said in one point, you cannot refine metal without heat. And you cannot have an undivided faith in God without trials. Do you agree with him? It's going to make us view difficulties that come in a very different way from the way mo most of us just want to get away from them. And most preachers say, well, if you believe hard enough and show up at our church, then you'll never have any trials. And the Bible says, wait a minute, God has something good he wants to do through them. I will contend that it's almost always impossible to know what we ultimately trust in until times of trial come. Um, I think all churchgoers will say something like this, well, pastor... I believe in God. I worship God. I mean, I'm showing up at church. I'm, I listen to sermons. <laughs> you know, people may say, of course, my trust is in Him. But the fact is that most of us in this world trust in many, many, many things. They're at the center of our hearts and we trust that we'll hold on to those things so that we can keep having some joy and meaning in life. I mean, how, I've tried to think about how am I going to get at this so that it communicates. I just think about people who say to me something like this. Well, I've been believing in God for a long time and showing up at church and I still haven't found a husband or wife. My, this, this faith thing isn't working for me. I believe in God and I show up at church and I still lost my job. I still didn't get that promotion. I still failed that test. You see, the, the point is, are those, things, are those things necessary things in order for you to live? How, how are you going to know? It's only when those things are threatened. When, it, when you see that you have lost or might lose those things, that the fire is coming. We're finding out what, what is pure within us. As long as things are easy and good. Now, we thank God for them, but as long as they are, we can kind of hold on to Jesus and those things. It's only when the fire comes that we really find out is my cornerstone, the one who gives me life, Jesus? Or is it just that I want Jesus to get me some other things? 
Uh, I contend that when everything is going well, we can, we can just with our mouths say, well, of course, Jesus is the Lord of my life. I, I obey the first commandment. I don't have anything in the place of God. God alone is my God. And in good times, we can almost fool ourselves into thinking that that's true. But we don't even know how, how much some other allegiances just grab hold of our hearts. We have this amalgam in us. And when the fire comes and those things are threatened, then we will know. I've thought about it this way, that a fire is any situation in which trusting God, living for God first, is likely to cost us something that is very, very dear to us. When the trial comes, I find God often saying something to me like this. See if you've ever sensed this. Now, Greg, we're going to find out if you really trust me and find me to be the sufficient one and whether you are here to serve me or whether you claim to believe in me to get me to serve you. You ever sense that? Yeah, when, when it comes, it might be God saying something like this. Now, now we're going to see whether um, I am the end, the goal of your life, and all those other things are secondary. They're joys, but not the center of your life. Or whether those things are the end and the goals of your life. And, and really, you just say you believe in me to try to get me to give you those things. You see, the difficulties, the trials in this world come as a fire that will show us what is real. Now, I, I just have to ask you, I've thought about how people might read this because it's so unusual to hear a sermon like this in a church, though it fills the New Testament. Is it, is it mean-spirited of God to allow trials to come? I say it is not. It's why the early Christians longed to share in the sufferings of Christ. Sometimes they are necessary for you and me to become what God created us to be and what we long to become. Second thing that uh, trials do, it incinerates the temporary and the unimportant. It shows you what's dross and it shows you what dross is and that dross is not worthy of being a god. There, there's such an insightful passage. I don't have time to go to it. I wanted to. In Jeremiah chapter 2, if you read that, uh, the people of God in the Old Testament said that they believed in Jehovah God. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, God knew that they didn't, that other things were truly their gods. And he would say at the end of the chapter, he would say, as many as you have towns in your nation, you have gods, O Israel. And then he, he turns to them specifically about the kinds of gods they were making or put their hearts in, in verses 27 and 28. You say to wood, God says, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. You have turned your backs to me, yet, when you are in trouble, you say, come and save us. Where then are those gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. Now to us, now to us. On one side, we say that the God of the Bible, the God, the maker of the heaven and earth, is my God. On the other side, we know we have all these other things that we really want. Pleasure, comfort. In the academy, it was intellectual respectability. 
It can be our possessions. It can be our families. It can be so many times. I'll tell you, someday in this world, something will come that will show to you that that other thing is a terrible God. Something will come that will take that away. If you think I've got to have that in order really to live, something will come that 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 thing won't... Because there aren't any other things in this world that last, you see. Uh, Aging is one of the things that I'm beginning to see, but you know, as I'm dealing with my parents, I'm beginning to see that the things that so many people in this world invest their hearts in will not last. And then even if they do, death will take those things away. So we, we live for our careers, but th- those aren't going to last forever, right? We live for our homes and try to make them nice, and that's wonderful, but they're not going to last forever. Uh, we try to make sure we look good, uh, trying to look younger than we are, putting the putty in the wrinkles and all, all these things. But no, no matter how hard, no matter how hard we try to fight it off, it, it, we just can't fight it off forever. And when the fire comes, we see how temporary those gods are. So I, I just ask, when, when something comes up and there's a dream that you have and you know you're not going to get it, in whom do you trust, that dream or in God? when it was something in your career that you thought, I just have to have that, or a relationship, I must have him or her, and, and a fire comes and that person is taken away. How do those things hold up under trials? Uh, living for pleasure, how, how does that hold up when a stroke hits us? Uh, I just declare to you that other gods, other things that we have as an amalgam in our lives will not hold up when the fire comes. They may be wonderful things, but they are rotten gods. (laughs) They weren't meant to be that. And fire comes to show that to us. And then third, fire demonstrates that God and God alone is truly the eternal God. takes me all the way back to the way I started this whole year. Genesis chapter 1. An overture the Bible begins with. God speaks, I am here. And this is what I am like. Before anything in this world was made, I am. Therefore, nothing in this world can do damage to me. Fire is a part of my creation. It is not, as Brandon sang, out of my control. So so that when the trials come, as C.S. Lewis in his marvelous book, The Problem of Pain, would say, many times we have to view it as God blowing His trumpet. so, So that we who are often deaf to Him, because we're living for things in this world, may know that He is there and that He is in control. It is God saying to us, I am ready to be your refuge and your strength. I am ready to be your source of life that cannot be taken away. But we must sometimes have the fire so that we can know. The Apostle Paul, in one of the greatest texts that some of you are visiting, I don't know if you often go to other churches, but this is one of the greatest texts in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. I'll just show you a part of it. It's all about going through trials too and what God does in the midst of them and remaking us. And in verse 28, he says, We know that in all things, all things, God is at work. 
And he, if you read it, he was writing some groanings and sufferings that most people don't want to have around, longing for them to be over. But in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him. And then later on he says, because look at what we have. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or, or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, even sword. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers nor height, nor depth. I can almost hear him saying, did I miss anything? Nor anything else in all creation. (laughs) Be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week I had the privilege of doing the memorial service for Gene Headley, who used to sit right over here. Oh, Evan, I saw you here. And uh, I quoted a famous quote from uh, D.L. Moody at her memorial uh, service. And so many of you who were there said, Pastor Greg, you have to say that to the whole church. So I will, because it really fits here so well. D.L. Moody, in preaching in England, got up and declared this. He said, someday you will read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. When you do, don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I ever have been. I shall have gone up higher, that is all. Out of this old clay tenement, you know what he's talking about there, don't you? This creaky body that we have. Out of this old clay tenement, into a house that is immortal, into a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. For I was born of the flesh in 1837, but I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh will die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. You remember then I, I sort of changed those words. I said if Jean were here, uh, I think that she would want to be saying to us right now something like this. On July 31st, 2010, you are having a service there at Lake Avenue Church in which some of you have come thinking that Jean Headley of Pasadena is dead. If you hear that, don't you believe a word of it? For at this moment, I am more alive than I ever have been. See, what we saw in those later years, and I've only been here these three years, you know, was the reality of how the fires of this world, especially aging, had had done so many things to Jean as she would go through and just tell me how much she loved these sermons on the living hope. Uh, But she went slower almost each time. So we saw that those things are real, but we saw what was happening in her. Her faith in Jesus was being more and more refined. And the beauty was becoming more and more enhanced. And it was beautiful, wasn't it? It was beautiful. See, fire under the control of a loving and merciful God is a mercy that brings about a lasting beauty. That when people see it, they should see the reflection of God in us. So we've thought about what trials are and we've thought about what they do, just a word at the very end about when they come, what Peter says we should do to respond to them. Look at verse 12 and 19 once again. He starts, here's where you begin. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then down in verse 19. 
those who suffer according to God's will should, one, commit themselves to their faithful creator, and two, we should continue to live in this world, (laughs) facing the realities of this world, but continue to do good. So just three, so practical, three statements of when the fires come, what we should do. Number one, don't be surprised. The rest of the world may be shocked that everything they had lived for and they'd invested in is being taken away. The company comes and says, we're retiring you. We shouldn't be surprised when that happened. It it, it comes to everyone. And, And the specific issue that Peter's talking about here is followers of Jesus that many times the trials will come specifically because we're living for God in this world and people mock us for that. And that's why this difficult section down there, and I think it's verse 18 or 17 or 18, where he's quoting Proverbs and says, it's hard for the righteous to be saved. You want what he's getting at there, don't you? That trials come to refine. That's hard, but God will do it. So when, when, when the trials come, we, we shouldn't be surprised, especially because we know the life of Jesus, and, and which he's pointed to throughout the entire book of First Peter. That Jesus came and he didn't have a place to, to put his head. And then, of course, he experienced the greatest of suffering in the history of the world when he went on the cross and bore our sins on himself. And yet, he wasn't burned up or incinerated by that. He defeated sin and death by his resurrection. So that's the pattern that we follow. That, that when they come, we know God is in control. And then we just wait to see what he's going to do because he did it in Jesus And the same God is the God to whom we've committed ourselves. So we're not going to be surprised because, you know, often when we're surprised, we say, wow, on earth is that happening to me? I worked so hard. We we become panicky, don't we? We become panicky. And we become almost desperate. And he says, don't think that fires are strange. Don't be surprised. Just know and trust God that he's in control. Which is the second specific instruction. I put it this way in verse 19. Engage then in an intentional act of faith. Um, he puts it, and probably much better than I did, commit yourself to your faithful creator. <laughs> commit yourself afresh to your faithful creator. I think if you've come to church today and you're going through some really tough times and they feel like they're going to overwhelm you, you may almost out loud have to say, maybe not during the sermon, but soon, um, Lord, I don't know what you are doing or where this is headed, but I know you and I know you are good. I will trust you. Chris and I have talked to you about this ever since we came. We've had many times in our lives where the trials felt that they would overwhelm. The death of our second child, I've told you about the death of my brother from a drunk driver hitting him just so many times. And then there's no pat answer. You can't even find a reason why things like that happen. You can't see any good where this is headed. And I I think I've told you that in each situation, I I come back and read texts like this. And then I have to ask, Father, do I really believe all these things that I preach? (laughs) That you are good, that you are in control, that I don't have to be overwhelmed by this loss. And it's brought me to this thing that I call an intentional act of faith. We're just like the first time we come to Jesus. We say, I know it's true. Here is my life. Here is my sins. Are you sure you want them? (laughs) And he takes us and he casts the sins as far as the east is from the west. In a very similar way, 
I think when the trials come, we have to come specifically to God and say, I don't see it, but I will trust you. And that's what he says, commit yourself to your faithful creator, knowing even of this thing, our God is in control. And then the third very practical statement, I've called it obey God. He put it, once again, probably I didn't improve it, continue to do good. (laughs) You know why that's there, don't you? You know why that's there. It's because when the stress comes and the difficulties comes, then we often use that as an excuse to do what's wrong. We become short-tempered with people we love and we feel like, ah, I I deserve to be able to, to tear them down. At work, we say, They've been, they didn't give me a raise. They're treating me bad. I'm not going to work hard. I'm going to steal some paper clips. You know, do all these crazy things as an excuse to be unfaithful, uh, not to give at church anymore, not even to show up. I mean, just so many things. We, he says, don't do it. You know how to live. You know how to live. I've taught you how to live. And as hard as it is when you go back in, even in the midst of the stress, continue to do good. And when people see this, they will say, what does that person have? And they will see God in you. See, God can use the fire to make something beautiful out of us. But if we sin in the midst of the fire, it will do great, great damage. I think that the message that Peter is saying is that when, when the fire comes... Make sure you allow some of this beautifying, purifying work to happen. It's the greatest opportunity. I'm going to close with a story that a a friend back in Arlington Heights told. He called it the parable of the pit. His name's Pastor Colin Smith. He said, envision this. He's trying to let us know that there are certain things that God does and often does only in the midst of the trials. Here it is. You are poor and in debt. And you are told that you must live in a pit for a period of time. And then after you get out of the pit, you will never have to return there again. You are told that you will have access to everything in that pit. But while you are there, you must grow. And you must use that time to become ready for your future. Then you're lowered into the pit. It is worse than you thought. Dark, damp, and it smells terrible. You feel around in the darkness. The walls are slick, yet sharp like glass. You find you cut your finger. You're shocked by all of this and angry, and you think, what can I do in this place to make a life and a future? Depression comes over you in this darkness. You only want to get out. You never want to return there again. So you count the hours and the days as best you can. Finally, the day of relief comes and you are lifted out of the pit. You think, the ordeal is over. I never want to go through that again. You flee from that place in frustration and disgust about all the time you've wasted there. But then... As you look back on the path, you stop and stare at a sign. And then you are shocked. You cannot believe what you are reading. You discover that you have just spent all of your time in a diamond mine. 
the point is that there are some things about God, about His grace, about what He wants to do in our lives that can only be mined in the darkness. The point is that God's gems are so often to be found in unexpected places and unexpected times, even fiery ordeals. So I want to say to you, if in these days you are going through a time of darkness, what Peter calls a fiery trial, do not come out of this time with your hands empty. Let's pray together. Our Father, with so many people in, in the churches are here today, I, I don't know how this word speaks to them. There's some perhaps who have never come to know you as their faithful creator. May they see that you alone can explain the kind of world that we are in, the kinds of things that we experience, and teach us how to look at them head on and live lives of confidence and peace in the midst of them. Father, for some who come, may this be the day that they believe in you. With whatever simple words they can use, may this be the moment that they say, Lord, I want to follow Jesus. Here is my life. Here are my sins. Will you take me? And then, Father, give yourself to them. Father, I know that for so many here, they're walking through fiery trials even now, maybe with their finances or their work, their marriages, their children, their parents, so many things it could be. It's hard to know how to pray or to see when we're in the darkness. But, Father, make yourself real to them at this point. I pray that they will find you to be a refuge and a strength and a very present help in this time of trouble. Father, use this service, this message, and this time in our lives to refine us into those in whom you and those who see us may see a reflection of your face. In the name of Jesus, amen.